Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Raggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. And this is Generation Jihad, the podcast that covers all things in the field of what used to be known as the War on Terror. Today, of course, I'm joined by my colleague, friend, and co-host, Caleb Weiss. Caleb is a senior analyst at the Bridgeway Foundation. He's also a, the co-editor at Long War Journal, and as well as, of course, my co-host at Generation Jihad. Caleb, great talking with you as always. Absolutely. I'm, again, not going to thank you for having me on. This is not my job. That's right. That's right. You, you are part of the team. Um, today, we have the pleasure of being uh, joined by two of Caleb's colleagues at the Bridgeway Foundation, Tara Candland. She is the vice president of research at Bridgeway Foundation, and also Ryan O'Farrell. He is a senior analyst at Bridgeway. Um, he's also been on this podcast before. We talked about Mozambique, and he's a contributor to the Long War Journal. Tara, Ryan, thank you for joining Generation Jihad. It's great to have you on. Great to be here. Yeah, great to be back. Yeah, it's always a pleasure. We have a great topic today. Um, the Bridgeway team recently published a groundbreaking report at the George Washington University's program in, on extremism. The report is called Fatal Transaction, the Funding Behind the Islamic State's Central Africa Province. Um, we're going to get into that. Um, excellent information. I highly recommend uh, if you're interested in in the Islamic State Central Africa province that you go ahead and read this report. A lot of excellent information in there. Um, before we start, um, Tara, um, give us a, who is the Bridgeway Foundation? What do you do? Um, tell us a little bit about the Bridgeway and yourself. Sure. So Bridgeway Foundation is a private foundation based in the United States. It's the philanthropic arm of Bridgeway Capital Management, which are basically a bunch of wonderful people who decided to give half of their after-tax profits to the foundation with this goal of um, ending and preventing mass atrocities. So we've really been, been focused on that and focused on Central Africa for about the last 15 years, first working on the Counter Lords Resistance Army project, and then since 2017, focused on the ADF or the Islamic State DRC. And that's where that's what this project came out of was this this Bridgeway Foundation focus on the ADF. So um, we've been very fortunate with this this kind of anti-financing project to also be funded by the Howard G. Buffett Foundation, who's been very generous in believing in us and helping us on this. So we have those two supporters and Bridgeway Foundation itself actually has two parts. We have the programming side, which focuses on um, more promoting defections, de-radicalization, reintegration of the group, and then you have the research and analysis side. And that's the team that you've got on today. It's the, the three of us. Yeah, it's a it's fascinating work that you do. It's a very interesting. Um, this recent report, um, how long did this report take? Tell us a little bit about the methodology and any other interesting information you can provide before we get into the, the meat of the actual report. Yeah, this report has been a long time coming. So we found the first evidence that we, well, I guess we found the first evidence that we quoted in this report a while ago, which were the same transactions. But the main part of the report, which is this Bashir network that goes down from Somalia to South Africa, we found the first evidence for that back actually in March 2020, when one of our colleagues was on the ground for about 24 hours, flew out because COVID was happening. But our research is based on, it's all primary source. So we we interview defectors, we interview former collaborators, we interview people who have direct knowledge of what's happening with the group. And one of our colleagues was interviewing someone and was given as part of this interview a receipt of money that this guy had received. And on the receipt, there was the name and phone number of the sender. And at that point, COVID shut everything down. We couldn't do anything with it. Fast forward to June of 2021, when we started to be able to travel again. And that's when we were able to pick this back up. So over a year later, and we just started with that one receipt and working with some amazing partners on the ground, um, we're able to, from there, identify who was sending the money, trace it backwards, interview people all along the way, 
and subsequently get more receipts, more banking information, and pushed into a couple of other networks. So it's been it's been a long time coming. And part of the our reluctance in in initially publicizing this was obviously we don't want to do anything to mess up law enforcement. So the the first thing, if if our if our goal truly is to prevent and end mass atrocities, the goal is not to publish, it's to let law enforcement do their job. So we wanted to wait for a while until they had time to really wrap up this network that we talk about. And then once that was done, we we started working on this paper. So I think this is a good place to to jump into like the actual meat of the paper. And I think the first place to start on that, um, just because you know the listeners of this podcast may not be entirely too familiar with the ADF, um, given it's it's kind of you know little understanding in the you know geology sphere. Um, so I think Ryan, this is more of a question for you or, or something that you could jump in on is if you could start with a little bit of its origins, um, you know, and how it started in Uganda, then moved to DRC um, and sort of these these early days. Sure. Uh, so ADF has been around a long time. Um, they've been in Eastern Congo since 1995, and their origins are from probably about five years earlier than that. So kind of in 1990, there were some clerical disputes in Uganda and Jamil Makulu, who ended up being the ADF's leader, was locked up. And after he got out of prison, he decided to launch a rebellion against the Ugandan state um, in Western Uganda. And that was squashed pretty quickly. And he fled across the border into Eastern Congo in 1995, found kind of sponsorship from um, the regime of Mobutu Seko, and kind of became a proxy force um, against Uganda. And so from 96 through 2001 or so, kind of launched this pretty vicious cross-border insurgency into Uganda. Um, but eventually, the you know, and this is kind of through the, the first and second Congo Wars, so a lot going on in the region. Um, but by the early 2000s, uh, you know, the Ugandans had pretty severely limited what ADF was able to do, but they were still there. And so they kind of stuck on in Eastern Congo, um, you know, through the 2000s and kind of embedded themselves within local communities, kind of trade relationships, um, intermarriage with local elites. Um, But then by 2010 or so, the relationships started to change. There were a few Congolese and UN military operations against them, and they started um, attacking local civilians. And this was kind of a, a, a gradual shift. But by two, early 2014, um, the Congolese military uh, and MINUSCO finally launched this big offensive, and it it really severely weakened the group. And they went from probably 1,000 combatants, maybe 1,500 to 2,000 total members, if you include like women and children who are also in the camps. Um, that was between you know, battlefield casualties and people surrendering and people escaping, that was down to maybe a couple hundred. Um, Jamil Makulu fled Congo and he was arrested in Tanzania uh, a year later in 2015. And he's been in prison in Uganda since then. He was extradited. Um, And so the ADF was kind of handed to his deputy, Musa Baluku, um, who had been with the group since 1995, 1996, and had kind of steadily risen through the ranks as a um, as a senior cleric and uh, judge. Um, pretty bad reputation for for violence and brutality. Pretty vicious guy. Um, but you know he was the deputy, and with with uh, Makulu gone, Baluku took over. Um, but with Makulu out of the picture, he had been um, kind of responsible for the ADF's financing. Um, so he had a UK passport, had uh, pretty extensive business relationships around East Africa and traveled frequently and was kind of the the one providing a lot of the external finance assistance that was helping sustain the group. So with him in prison, um, the group was strapped for cash, had very little uh, financial resources. Their local relationships were or scrambled um, because of this military offensive and kind of the deterioration in in relations with local communities. Um, And so by 
2016, 2017, um, they were really at a low ebb. Their ability to carry out attacks was very limited. Um, you know, I think there was a six, seven month period where they didn't kill anybody and didn't really launch any operations. Um, and kind of around that time period is when they start to reach out to kind of other networks in East Africa. Um, and a, a pretty significant figure in there is a guy named Mehdi Nkalubo. He's a Ugandan man. And he joined ADF in uh, 2016. So kind of in this low ebb. And he basically came with a, I guess what you would call a more traditional kind of jihadist um, ideological mindset. So much more global in nature, um, much more kind of oriented towards, you know, the, the kind of transnational jihadism of Al Qaeda and the Islamic state, um, pretty engaged on social media, um, probably radicalized kind of through his social media connections. Um, and so when he joined ADF, he, uh, became a kind of a central figure in reorienting the ADF's own perspective away from being this kind of parochial Ugandan Islamist movement into a um, more globally minded one. Um, and so I guess from what we can kind of piece together, these, these connections started to build over the course of, you know, 2016 and 2017. Um, and by the, by October, 2017, there were uh, pretty direct communications between the ADF's leadership and um, the Islamic state. So kind of the, the most recent group of experts report was able to kind of confirm um, some of the, the timeline on this stuff. We had a lot of this information before, but it was a little, a uh, little less certain, but essentially the ADF pledged allegiance, you know, officially pledged bio to um, Islamic state in you know, probably mid to late 2017. And it was formally accepted in October, 2017. And um, almost immediately is when you start to see money move. So that first transfer that Tara mentioned was a month later. Um, also in October 2017, there were four men, um, I think a, a Tanzanian, a Kenyan, um, I can't remember the nationalities of the others, but kind of from around East Africa, all of whom had been living in South Africa, uh, went to Goma to go kind of join ADF as, as envoys of Islamic State carrying drones. So they were arrested um, in Goma and it was kind of a several years of them sitting in jail, but it was uh, still a pretty clear indication of, um, you know, as soon as that pledge was accepted, there were resources made available to the ADF. Um, and just, to, just to stop here, to provide a little bit more context of <clears throat> what the ADF was kind of doing behind the scenes of you also around this period of 2016, 2017 started to see more, you know, global jihadi oriented, you know, media output. So really rudimentary videos kind of mimicking Al-Qaeda, the Islamic State, but not to the same degree or quality. Um, you know, and you know, Ryan mentioned this, but in late 2017 is when they first pledged Baya. Um, that's also when the first video sort of hit the Islamic State's supporter networks. Um, there was a video of this Tanzanian member, um, goes by Jundi, um, but he, you know, released this video from the jungle basically calling on people to come join the Islamic state in Congo. Um, and it's really the first time that, you know, a lot of people, even within the Islamic state, um, you know, ecosystem really saw this group for the first time or really heard about this group for the first time. Um, and I think that, you know, provides important context for, you know, what was going on behind the scenes, you know, they kind of showed that a little bit to the public with that, with that video at first. Um, but then after that, everything kind of snowballed into what it is now. Yeah, I think, you know, Jundi, who now goes by Abu Akas and who is most likely the one who is behind that horrific attack last month in, in Uganda, he's become quite a major player in Congo. Um, you know, he's been a central part of all of this. He was a central part of the connection between the ADF and the Islamic State. Um, he was down in South Africa at the time and in contact with uh, Farhad Humer, with Patrick Modis, with Abadiga. Abadiga was one of the ones that went up to Congo, like Ryan mentioned, one of that group of four who went up and was arrested and later released and made it back down to South Africa and has been sanctioned by the U.S. So there was a 
a small group of pretty important Islamic State members in South Africa who really were key to the ADF making this connection with the Islamic State. And now Abu Waqqas is up there in the jungles in Congo and continuing. But Jim, I think we should also explain who Patrick Modis is. Yeah, one of one of those South Africans, um, Patrick Modis, uh, ended up going to Syria, and um, he was kind of the the from the ADF to the Islamic State's leadership in Syria. Um, so his, I believe, his wife and one of his children are in Al Hol camp in in northeastern Syria, um, and. Some of the local reporting in, in South African media had said that he was that Modis was missing, but this latest GOE report says that he's actually in custody in northeast Syria, which is interesting. I have uh, one quick question. So we knew back in 2017 the ADF pledges to Islamic State, Islamic State accepts it, and yet for I think even maybe within the last year is what we've seen. We've heard arguments that the ADF isn't part of the Islamic State. I know this must be awfully frustrating to you three who have, uh, you know, dealt with this issue, have seen the facts. What, what is the motivation for that, for the, what uh, my colleague, uh, Tom Jocelyn and I, and, and Caleb as well, have called disconnect the dots. People have wanted to disconnect the ADF from the Islamic State. Why, why has that persisted for so long? There are a couple of different ones. I mean, I'm sure we can all talk about different aspects of this. One of the ones that I do want to make sure we mention is there was a difference in the way we were getting our information versus the way a lot of others were getting their information. So a lot of researchers who were reluctant to accept that the ADF was part of the Islamic State was talking main, were talking mainly to community members. Every once in a while, they'd get access to a defector or a victim. Whereas our methodology is to talk to people who have been in the camps, who have come out of the group, who have, who can tell us what's happening inside the group. And so that's a, that's a huge difference in terms of what kind of information you're going to get because the ADF for so long, like Ryan said, you know, they were part of the Congolese communities. You know, you talk to people who were living in Beni back in 2010, 2007, and they talk about the ADF as this group who would come in on market days, they'd leave their guns at the police station, they'd buy their food, they'd walk back out, they'd chat, you know, they were they were known. And so this made it very hard for community members when these massacres started, it made it very hard for community members to accept that these people that they knew were the ones who were now brutally killing them. And so there was a, a big disconnect there with the community members' understanding of how the group was shifting. And that's where a lot of researchers were getting their information versus inside the group, especially with the transition to Baluku's leadership and how extreme he is. The people inside the group were, were very quick to tell us, no, this we're part of the Islamic State. Baluku has issued new orders. We're the ones who are killing. You know, it was it's a very, very different picture depending on who you're talking to. And so I think it took a little while for what was happening in the group to actually distill down into the understanding of the community members around. There are other reasons I'm sure, but that that's one of the big ones. Thank you. And I think also, um, you know, the, the idea that there is a kind of template following jihadist insurgency in Eastern Congo is just kind of like an odd concept for a lot of researchers. It's not what you would expect. You know, it's that kind of militancy is, has been around a long time in other regions in, in the continent. You know, if you're looking at the Sahel, if you're looking at Somalia, if you're looking at North Africa. So I think people who are in that space, who are looking at, at conflicts um, kind of know that this is, at least possible they're kind of you know it's there's a, a foundation for it in eastern congo that wasn't really the case this is a very new phenomenon um that hadn't existed in congo's been going back decades now and so i think from an analytical perspective there was um 
kind of a, a a little bit of a blind spot there or just kind of an unfamiliarity and so kind of establishing that familiarity um and then what makes it even more complicated is that you have to establish that familiarity in the context of how complicated congo's conflicts already are so you have all these preceding conflicts that are you know ethnically based or you know over resources or all these other factors and then you throw in this kind of um you know wild card of a externally financed jihadist insurgency it's just kind of comes out of nowhere almost in in within that analytical landscape and so i, I think that's made it a little harder to to get people on board um but you know i i think now you know the evidence is so overwhelming that um it's it's pretty well accepted yeah i mean, I mean unlike the, once the suicide bombing started it kind of those arguments kind of stopped that was a big one but uh, yeah like eastern congo is less than 10% muslim it's not this is not the typical place where you're going to see a jihadist group take root and so you know to ryan's point this was analytically a difficult thing to accept because you're not you don't have a, a local population that you can recruit from that can support you so it it's just not your typical islamic state insurgency right just to get us back on the timeline here we briefly alluded to it but 2017 was also the similar year that uh you know the adf first got you know its main financial transfer from the islamic state via a middleman named Walid Ahmed Zain in Kenya. Um, and I think, Tara, if you want to talk a little bit more about who he is um, in that transfer uh, and go down that route a little bit. Yeah, so Zain is a Kenyan. Um, his family, so his father and some of his siblings went and joined the Islamic State, and he decided not to. He stayed back in Kenya. But after a couple of years, his father basically contacted him from Syria and said, hey, why don't you help us at least move money to support the cause from, from there? And so he worked with, as best we can tell, and this is a, a strange relationship, so it it was the woman who was his father's fiance who was supposed to go to Syria with him, but didn't end up going, Halima. So they worked together to move money on behalf of the Islamic State. And so they would receive the money via a kind of cutout in Turkey from Islamic State, money raised by Islamic State supporters, both in Syria, but also around the world, in Europe, a, a lot of them. Um, and then they, would, they were responsible for distributing the money. And we have receipts that show that $11,000 of that money went to the ADF in November and December of 2017. Um, the U.S. actually sanctioned both of them, Halima and Zayn, and said that they moved about $150,000 in this network in, the, in, I think it was about a year that they were operating. And then the Kenyans found them and arrested them, and they're awaiting trial right now. But so that was the first time that we saw money moving from the Islamic State directly to the ADF. Right. And then, you know, fast forward two years, the Islamic State promotes the ADF as an official province, calls it the Islamic State Central Africa province. Uh, in 2020, Musa Baluku kind of rejects the ADF name, says that they are only Central Africa province now. Um, but, you know, let's, let's talk a bit more about, you know, the actual paper at hand and, and what we found with the financing. And one of the main things I think that, you know, makes our report stand out is that we found that the way that the ADF was financed by the Islamic State sort of mirrors how the Islamic State's funding mechanisms also change themselves. So you see, you know, from direct funding, which is where, you know, the Islamic State central actually sends money directly to these affiliates, whether in Libya, Afghanistan, Philippines, into sort of a hybrid period with middlemen, sort of where Zane operated, to now where it's more what we call regionally pooled, which regionally pooled means that there are certain designated areas around the world where certain Islamic state groups are responsible for, and it is them to kind of raise money and pull that money together from you know these various disparate networks 
to fund each other or fund other uh, Islamic State affiliates. Um, so that's sort of you know the progression of of the ADF of going from Zayn to what they do now. Um, and you know I think this is you know kind of a, a microcosm of the way the Islamic State works in general, um, with how the, the these money making mechanisms for that's going into the ADS coffers are sort of regionally directed elsewhere. So Ryan, if you could talk us a little bit about, you know, these regional offices, you know, and the general directorate of provinces, um, sort of how that works and, and what that looks like in our context. Yeah, sure. Um, so, I mean, we've kind of talked a lot about the ADF's internal transformation, but as it was moving towards joining the Islamic State, it was kind of an interesting time um, because from you know, the other side of this relationship, the Islamic State was also going through a lot of um, pretty major shifts, um, coming under severe military pressure in Iraq and Syria, it had been losing most of its kind of the, the the territory it controlled as its, you know, territorial caliphate, um, losing uh, Mosul, losing a lot of the, the big cities in Iraq, losing access to oil fields in eastern Syria. And so kind of in this 2017 to 2019 period, the Islamic State lost all of its directly controlled territory, you know, finally lost it in, in March 2019, only only a month prior to the ADF's kind of uh, coming out party as the, the Central Africa province. Um, and so kind of in that transition, Islamic State went from being one of the most well-financed terrorist organizations ever. Um, you know, I, some of those estimates are over a billion dollars, um, you know, raised through oil sales and extortion and kind of looting central bank branches in Iraq. Um, and that, that those huge financial resources, they no longer had access to them and, and um, their ability to launder them back out to, um, it's kind of far flung provinces was pretty limited. So while in you know, 2014, 2015, they could kind of, when, when other jihadist insurgencies around the world pledged allegiance and were accepted as provinces, Islamic state could kind of shower them with hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. That was no longer possible. Um, they either just didn't have the money or they needed that to, you know, bankroll kind of the, the remaining insurgency, um, you know, fund fighters, fund their families. I mean, there's tens of thousands of Islamic State kind of personnel and dependents and, and detention and, and, and IDP camps in Iraq and Syria. Um, so there was a, a pretty huge uh, kind of constraint on their ability to directly finance their, their provinces abroad. And as that was happening is when the ADF was joining. And so the ADF, I think, kind of gives an interesting as that relationship was building and as we're kind of getting our eyes on the, the financial relationship, it gives an interesting window into that kind of transition period. Um, and so, you know, ADF enters in this hybrid period in the middle where some of the money was probably directly coming from the Islamic state, but as, as Tara mentioned, um, other money was raised by supporters, you know, in Europe and kind of pooled together and then moved. Um, and at that time it seemed somewhat ad hoc, you know, they're kind of coordinating with each other and trying to move money around from all these different places, but it wasn't particularly institutionalized. Um, but you, it was an indication that the um, fundraising and laundering, instead of being a direct top-down relationship, was becoming more distributed. Um, and that structure of financing, as we kind of cover in our paper, uh, becomes more institutionalized in 2019 and 2020. And that's where, as you mentioned, Caleb, kind of the Islamic State establishes its general directorate of provinces um, as the administrative bureaucratic arm managing all the various you know, Islamic State loyalist insurgencies around the world. And underneath that established these regional offices that would coordinate um, media production, fundraising, money laundering, uh, the movement of uh, technical advisors, all these kind of value-added benefits of Islamic State membership to its various branches and establishing more horizontal relationships between the various provinces um, rather than a kind of direct vertical relationship between um, the, the, the core, the center, and its 
um, kind of distant uh, provinces around the world. Um, so these kind of regional offices, the the big ones would be um, in West Africa, the Furkan office kind of covering Nigeria and the Sahel. Um, so West Africa province, now the Sahel province. Um, and then uh, there's a few others that are kind of defunct or, or not particularly productive in, in Libya, Sinai. Um, there's an office kind of covering Iraq and Turkey and Syria. Um, but the one that we really focus on is Al-Qarar in Northern Somalia. Um, so this office kind of its regional area of responsibility is um, Islamic state networks in East Africa and Central Africa. So Somalia, Kenya, Tanzania, Mozambique, South Africa, Uganda, and Congo. And this office essentially um, coordinates fundraising and then moving that money around to its recipients. And we're, our paper showed, and you know, we're seeing this in other sources, that um, Karar has now evolved to the point where it's actually funneling money outside of its own kind of area of responsibility into others, um, which kind of says something about its importance. Um, right, and just on that point real quick, I think that's, that's a solid argument to make that you know, with Al-Qarar kind of playing this outsized importance outside its designated AO, it kind of seems like the Islamic State is transitioning its, you know, general director of provinces to be more like, you know, Al-Qaeda's MO of this globally dispersed middle management or, or senior leadership, as, as Bill can definitely talk to. Of, you know, Al-Qaeda learned from the drone campaign and, you know, in Pakistan that you're going to have to move leaders around to, you know, actually organize a global network. And I think the Islamic State is sort of learning that now. Um, you know, one evidence we have of that is this guy named Bilal al-Sudani, um, who, you know, ostensibly led Al-Qarar, if not was a senior leader in Al-Qarar, um, sort of directing a lot of the money to, you know, ADF, the, the guys in Mozambique, elsewhere. Um, but, you know, the U.S. government also says that he funded the suicide bombing on Abbey Gate in Afghanistan during, during the withdrawal. Um, so someone like him definitely seems like a Islamic State global leader or a central leader placed elsewhere around the world, um, you know, and who's to say, you know, there's likely more individuals like him that we just don't know about yet. Um, but it seems like these regional offices are just a way for them to globalize this middle management structure more akin to what Al Qaeda learned. Um, sorry to interrupt you, but I think it's just an important point to to, to contextualize not only like what the Islamic State did then but also like kind of where they're heading in the future yeah and i'm going to add to that really quickly i I agree with your point ryan that you made about you know that shows the importance of al-qarar i'll use al-qaeda as an example um you know as its branches or affiliates or whatever you want to call them um as they've ebbed and flowed different ones over times have gained more importance so the, I think the best one to look at is Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula for in the early 2010s up until mid to late 2010s. Um, it was a key hub for Al-Qaeda moving funds. Uh, Nasser al-Wahishi, who was Osama bin Laden's aide-de-camp, he was Al-Qaeda's general manager. He was also the head of AQAP. Um, and as that's, uh, you know, as the, the, as the insurgency and Al-Qaeda and Arabian Peninsula's fortunes are um are receding at the moment. Again, it's a it's a it's a come and go. You know, it's been shifted to other areas. Um, I think in Afghanistan now is getting a little bit more, or Al-Qaeda in the um in the Indian subcontinent, as well as Al-Shabaab are playing more important leadership roles. So it's it's a very similar approach, um, a way to insulate it, the 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 larger organization from particular regions or the command structure from having problems. Um, yeah, I think kind of what's interesting, you know, in the, uh, looking at this comparatively, Islamic State has a bit of a restraint on it that I don't think Al-Qaeda did in that it's top leadership, you know, the, the caliph and, you know, the guy who runs the general directorate of provinces, they kind of have to be in Iraq and Syria. There is that very, very top leadership that you can't really disperse. Um, but of course, that makes them you know tremendously vulnerable. You've seen that with you know 
multiple caliphs being killed in in you know drone strikes or raids or just clashes with other local militias. Um, the guy who headed the general directorate of provinces for the first couple of years was killed in a drone strike in um, northwest Syria in February, I believe. Um, so there's a certain vulnerability there that just given the theological underpinnings and the kind of uh, uh, organizational realities of the Islamic State, they, they can't really distribute out that well. So by establishing these regional offices, you create this level of middle management that can essentially operate autonomously and collaboratively. And so within this constraint of not being able to move out that central leadership, they can still do their jobs and they can still move money and they can still collaborate. And we, we mentioned this in the paper and that there's these leaked documents came out, um, you know, by a, a Al Qaeda guy, I believe who was kind of defecting from the Islamic state back to Al Qaeda. And he started leaking all these docs and the, the directives from the central leadership were pretty clear that they want the um, kind of the emirs who run these offices to not only communicate with the core leadership in Iraq and Syria, but also to collaborate horizontally amongst themselves. So uh, provincial walis should talk to the regional office emirs, the emir regional office emirs should talk to each other, they should move money laterally between each other rather than just up and down. Um, so it seems like they're it kind of in, in recognition of the vulnerability of the top leadership, they seem to be um, distributing out decision-making and, um, you know, that kind of uh, prerogative out to this distributed leadership, even if the nominal top guys are still in those, those positions in, in Iraq and Syria. Um, so it's slightly different than Al-Qaeda's organizational model that kind of doesn't have that core leadership in one place always. Um, but on a practical level, I think it kind of comes out to the same place. Right. Uh, so, Tara, you mentioned this, you know, tangentially earlier about, you know, us documenting the Bashir network. Um, why don't you give us the rundown of, you know, what we actually documented, what we were able to find, what that network looks like, you know, where does it reach into? Um, just you know, break that down for us. So this network, we call it the Bashir network, which is the name of the the Somali refugee who was in South Africa, who was helping to distribute the money. We also call it the Hero Network in our paper because so Bashir started Hero Trading Company in South Africa. had It had an office in Mogadishu, and it was that connection that allowed the connect the transfer between IS Somalia and South Africa. So the money was being raised in IS Somalia. It was being passed over to this guy, Abdi Razak, in Mogadishu, who worked for Hirio, and who has subsequently been arrested and convicted by the Somali authorities for his role in moving money for the Islamic State in Somalia. From there, it was they used mainly the Hawala networks to get the money down to Johannesburg, where Bashir would receive it, and then working with... IS representatives in Johannesburg, it was sent to Nairobi to a cutout there in Nairobi. And then from there, distributed to the actual IS affiliate. So you've got multiple stages that this thing is going through. Um, the the Somali said that that Abdi Razak moved about 400,000 through the, the network. We were able to document through receipts and bank records 370,000 of that. So almost there. The major recipient was the ADF or the Islamic State DRC. They received about 130,000 that we saw moved. Um, but yeah, I mean, the the interesting part of it was obviously the complexity where you're going through so many stops to get to. It went to, it ultimately ended up in let's see, Uganda, Kenya, Tanzania, uh, Mozambique, and what Dubai, uh, UAE. Yeah, Dubai. yeah. Exactly. So it ended up all across Africa and up into the UAE, but going, you know, going through all of these steps along the way to try to hide it. And 
it was a very sophisticated network. I mean, that was that's one of the problems with these things, obviously, besides the difficulty of tracking hawalas, where you don't always have a physical movement of cash or receipt that you can find. Um, the what struck me was how much how how much the leadership was involved in all of the details here. So you have Mehdi, this guy who Ryan mentioned before, who was on the phone directing every step of the way up to, you know, the courier who was going to pick it up in Uganda, who was going to meet up with another courier and neither of them can know each other's names or have each other's contact information. So you're telling one courier, you know, Mehdi is literally calling up a courier and saying, Hey, at this date, at this time, wearing a red shirt, you're going to meet another person who's going to be right there wearing a blue shirt and you're going to hand off the cat. I mean, this was an incredibly well, well run network. Um, and they were able to take advantage of the Somali expat community, the Somali refugee community in South Africa and up in Nairobi to really make this happen. Um, and also take advantage of some of the lax laws. I mean, this is one of the big things that we run into is when you when you pick up the money, oftentimes you have to show an ID. So you actually have to give your ID or your phone number or something, and that helps in tracing where this money is going. But the sender doesn't have the same requirements. So Bashir was a mobile money operator. The Somali Kenyan that they used in Nairobi to move the money was a mobile money operator. And so they were able to send it using fake names, using obviously fake phone numbers. I mean, some of the phone numbers on these receipts is, you know, plus two, five, four, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And so it it makes it incredibly difficult to actually trace where all this money is coming from. And it just, you know, we we were lucky in that a couple of these receipts did actually have the real names and phone numbers on them, but the majority of them if you if you can't find the right ones, you're never going to be able to trace this network. And so it was, um, it was frankly luck on our part, and like I said before, some really good partners. But it's a it was a it was a well thought out and complicated network. And this is how we're seeing this money moved right now is from Somalia down to South Africa. They're taking advantage of cash transfers right now, which makes it even more difficult because once it's handed off in cash, you can't really tell where it's going or where it's going to end up. Um, And so it's just actually trying to find these networks and shut them down. I mean, my hat's off to to everyone who is doing this as a a profession. This is a, a very challenging job. And I think one of the most interesting things for me, at least, is when we were, you know, finding all of this, that we found evidence of, you know, a safe house in Lusaka, Zambia, where physical transfers of cash were being moved from South Africa back up to Uganda via Lusaka and then in Tanzania. And I think that's, you know, something that, like, personally would never expect of this Islamic State safe house in, in Zambia, of all places. But just another way that they're able to, you know, get around or skirt all these, you know, suspicions and and eyes on them. Um, and, you know, I think one caveat that should be made here is that, you know, this is just one stream, one financial stream that we were able to actually, you know, have sufficient documentary, you know, evidence or proof um, to feel confident to actually report on it. Um, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Tara, but I think there's, you know, at least two one, two others that we know about. Um, but, you know, there's probably more that we've, we've never seen, uh, you know, that are still currently ongoing. Um, and I think that that speaks to the, to the real worry here of, you know, this, this money has real life consequences. Um, you know, tracing it's one thing, but seeing the actual ramifications of this illicit money going into the coffers of the ADF is, is another thing. And it's, you know, I think the main worry for us is is what this money allows ADF or, you know, aka ISIS DRC, aka ISCAP to do in, in Eastern Congo and to, you know, an extent in in, in Uganda. Um, you know, I guess this is a question for, for either of you, really, if you could talk about, you know, sort of the implications that we're seeing on the ground uh, with this money. 
I'll let Ryan take that. But yeah, I think we need to emphasize how much $130,000 can do in Eastern Congo. You know, these aren't big numbers when you compare them to a billion dollars from ISIS in the, you know, back in its day or Al-Shabaab, you guys would know this better than I do, but I think they raise over a hundred million dollars a year. Just absurd, egregious. Yeah. Like these are, these are very small numbers, but in Eastern Congo, this makes a huge difference. And yeah, these are the consequences like you're saying, Caleb. And if I could jump in there real quick, that's just what we know. I mean, it, what always right. scares yeah. me is how much is slipping by that we don't have evidence of. No, and exactly. like I said, there, these are have, the things we have receipts yeah. for. Yeah, there's, there's, you know, at least two other streams that we know about. I mean, yeah. when we were looking at this, the timeline on it was September 2019 to October 2021, and we definitely didn't have a full picture of everything happening during that time period. There was tons going on before that. There's been tons going on since then. So. Uh, yeah, definitely need to emphasize that this is this should be seen as a as a minimum as a floor, um, and it's the the totals are are much much larger. Um, also, want to say like you know if you compare you know what the ADF's expenditures might be, and in, in terms of like how far this money goes, you know unlike say Al Shabab or the Taliban or other groups that are you know, in, in many cases, needing to use money to maintain civilian relationships, you know, if they're digging wells, or they're running schools, or they're spending money on an administrative apparatus, um, to kind of establish their their emirates or states or, or what have you, the ADF doesn't have to do that. They're not, their priority is not governance, their priority is sustaining themselves. So they're using this money to, you know, buy fuel if they need it, buy gum boots, buy food, buy medicine, soap, you know, those basic, basic supplies that allow people to live in their camps way off in the jungle. And so just to kind of emphasize that, you know, the the money that they're getting, the sums are quite large. And, you know, in, in a lot of cases are comparable to kind of the the monthly or yearly earnings of other insurgencies in Eastern Congo, but they do not have the financial requirements that other jihadist insurgencies have around the world. And so that money travels even further. Right. So let's, let's talk about like the actual effect. Um, you know, the paper lays out, you know, a few of, you know, massive expansion of manpower, uh, the, you know, area of operations itself expanding because, you know, the ADF has more money more resources. Um, and also, you know, the, the money is facilitating it becoming a regional terrorist actor. Um, so Ryan, if you could walk us through, you know, a brief presentation of all three of those main points and what this money is allowing the ADF to become. Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, if by all of those metrics, like the geographic area of operation, the number of uh, fighters within the camps, the severity of violence, all of that has very rapidly increased since this financial relationship began. Um, so since 2017, the area of operations has grown 450%, you know, in these five years, um, the number of like monthly civilian casualties, probably by a comparable number. I mean, I think in 2017 and 2018, the monthly average was Kind of in the in the low dozens, so maybe thirty civilians killed per month, and then twenty twenty one and most of twenty twenty two that had jumped up to over a hundred killed per month, um, and so that kind of size of the area of operations and the scale of civilian casualties, kind of our contention is basically that this money has enabled the ADF to sustain a much larger force, and so you can kind of see this in independent estimates of their manpower. In 2017, um, they probably had 400 to 450 fighters and probably maybe a similar number of dependents in the camps of women and children and hostages and stuff like that. Um, most estimates now are that they're fielding somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 fighters and probably another 1,000 dependents. So you're, you're seeing a tripling, essentially, of the armed and kind of unarmed force that are out in these camps and these camps are becoming more and more geographically dispersed. And so like the, the size of the force they're able to field has 
grown and that is what has enabled their ability to kind of inflict this violence on on communities in eastern congo they can do it more frequently more often more regularly and in more places because they have more people and they're able to have more people because they have more money um, that they can buy supplies with um so i think that's probably like the the real main severe impact i mean we do go into the paper of um you know some of the the bombings and other terrorist attacks but i think you know the the vast vast majority of casualties and damage and um just kind of these shocking atrocities that this group inflicts on local communities is that they simply have more capacity with which to do that um they've done it before but now they can do more of it and they are um so kind of to, to walk through basically in you know, prior to 2020, the ADF operated in Beni territory, which is kind of the northernmost territory of North Kivu province. Um, you know, kind of in Congo, you've got provinces and then you have territories, which are kind of the, the next administrative level down. Um, and so they had, you know, main camps in kind of the Virunga National Park, which is this really long, skinny national park that runs through most of kind of the eastern side of um of North Kivu province. Um, and these camps are kind of way off in the bush. And then they come out of the camps to, to attack kind of nearby villages and mountain raids. Um, starting in 2020, start to see them expand into Southern Irumu territory. And Irumu territory is just North of Beni. And it's the southernmost territory of Aturi province, um, which is North of North Kivu. So they kind of cross that territorial and provincial boundary into, into Aturi. Um, and basically since then they've been on a tear of expanding into new areas so summer 2020 is when they first start to kind of poke and prod in southern Irumu, and then by um march 2022 they really made a huge push into a tory province and this is kind of on the heels of uganda's um intervention in congo under operation shuja in november 30th 2021 which kind of followed the the bombings in kampala um they essentially relocated the leadership from uh, the, the longstanding headquarters camp um, just prior to it being captured by UPDF, moved the whole leadership into southern Aturi province and um, you know, rapidly moved north. I mean, over the face over, over the space of probably four or five months, they moved ballpark figures probably 150 kilometers um in and in that time period geographically probably doubled their area of operations um so it's likely there was some groundwork done for that but um they were able to move people that quickly um in force and have been in these kind of newly entered areas ever since so we're able to kind of rapidly expand and then entrench um, and this is kind of a, a ways of, of getting into more remote areas with less security force presence, um, you know, away from the, the epicenter of military operations against them. Um, but even then, in the, in the areas where military operations have been most intense, they have kind of kept on. I mean, this is a pretty wily insurgent group. They, they know what they're doing. Um, so I think, you know, with, with the, the money involved, it's that's enabled this relocation of leadership. It's allowed the kind of establishment of new camps. Um, we've also got reports of supply lines shifting. So before it was always kind of coming up from the south to the north through Batembo into Beni or across from Uganda into southern Beni. Um, now there we've got you know pretty consistent reports of supply lines coming south through Bunya. Um, so they've had enough financial resources to redirect their own supply lines, establish new ones, and this money has fueled that they've been able to hire people, you know, collaborators to deliver supplies, to procure supplies um, that has allowed them to, to put down roots in all of these new locations where, you know, in the ADF's 30 years of operation, they've never been before. Um, and so I, I think that belies kind of the, the impact of these financial resources is that they're able to scout, expand and entrench in places where there are other armed actors, where they've, don't have any social roots. They're not building upon previous relationships with local communities from, you know, a couple of decades ago, um, but they've got the money and the manpower to do it. Um, and it's 
really expanded um, the the scale and scope of their atrocities. And there are hundreds of thousands of civilians in areas that have never been impacted by the ADF before who are now displaced from their homes and, and seeing their villages burned down. Great. I think, you know, talking about the manpower itself, um, you know, the ADF has always sort of had, you know, regional foreign fighters from, you know, especially Burundi and some Tanzanians, but especially since it joined the Islamic State, we've also seen a lot of more hardline ideological fighters join the group. These are these are people who want to join the Islamic State, can't join them elsewhere. So now they're they're seeing the ADF as this viable option to fight for the Islamic State. Um, and I think that's had a also a sizable influence on these operations um, of, you know, more manpower coming in. These are now more ideological fighters. Um, and, you know, on the ideological side of, you know, of what the ADF has been able to do on the ground of, you know, we mentioned this earlier, but the implementation of suicide bombings. Um, this is something that the ADF never did before until they, they joined the Islamic State. Um, and then in June 2021, you know, they started the suicide bombings after a few months of, you know, desensitizing their members to these operations. Um, so now we've seen suicide bombings in Congo and in Uganda. Um, you know, we've we've seen, you know, urban bombings with IEDs in Congo and Uganda uh, and attempted plots in Rwanda. Um, you know, Ryan mentioned, you know, suicide bombings in Kampala, those kind of precipitated the the the, the Ugandan intervention in Congo. Um, and I think one thing that should be noted is, you know, Terry mentioned this earlier of there was a deadly, you know, brutal attack in, in Western Uganda last month um, that left, I believe the total is now 44 people dead or killed um, by just, you know, machetes or being shot um, that the ADF is, was, was responsible for. You know, that's a sad reminder of, of what this funding can do of allowing the expansion of this violence outside of of Congo and, you know, unfortunately on this school where the primary victims were teenagers. Um, you know, I think as, you know, we think about these things, there are a few final thoughts that I think are important to to note here. Um, I don't know if, if this is something, Terry, you want to talk about of, you know, sort of wrapping this up of, you know, Despite having said all this, you know, what are some things that, you know, the listeners should know or should be thinking about, um, you know, as we move forward? Sure. Um, you know, the the attack in Uganda was horrific. But unfortunately, it's not anything new for people who are following the ADF or following what they do in Congo. And that's, I mean, that it, it was particularly heartbreaking because it targeted a school, but you know, the, the 44 people who died there, there were 53 people who were massacred just a few months ago in Congo on March 8th um, when the ADF was retaliating against what we believe was the, the, killing of one of their commanders, although his death has not been officially confirmed. But, you know, these, these are, this is the reality for people who are living on the ground in, in Congo. I mean, this is, this is why we all do what we do. Why a lot of people are focused on this is to, to stop the killings. And there, there has been some, uh, some hope, I guess, you know, from September 2022 until February this year, right before the the ADF commander, Faisa, was reportedly killed, the ADF fatalities dropped significantly. I mean, dropped 50% from August to September and stayed low for about six months. And part of that, I mean, we're not quite sure what what led to all of that, what led to the full drop. But part of that was, we believe, some successes from Operation Shuja, this joint Ugandan Congolese operation that you guys have mentioned. You know, they they have, I think they're starting to hit their stride a little bit, where they've changed how they're operating. They've been a little bit more, I want to say, aggressive about kind of tracking the ADF into the jungle. 
And we've seen that. We've seen that reflected in the way the ADF is responding, the way the ADF has been able to operate. They've been on the run a lot more. They've been having to move a lot more, sometimes daily, which doesn't allow them to attack as often as they otherwise would. Um, Unfortunately, with the the March massacres, the, the violence has started to go back up. But it does show that there is there is a way to address this problem. The ADF remains in. The ADF still has the capacity to inflict these 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 attacks to um, to kill a lot of people. But there is a way to address the problem, and I think that that's what we need to be focused on. Um, you know, there's obviously not a lot that that we can be doing in terms of kinetic operations, but, you know, alongside the kinetic operations that the militaries are, are prosecuting, there are also other ways that we can be helping. Um, you know, I, I mentioned before that Bridgeway has a programming side. And one of the things that we do is we do defection messaging. So a, a significant portion of the group doesn't want to be there based on all of these interviews that we've done. You know, we've talked to about 200 people at this point over the last couple of years who have come out of the group. And there's a significant portion who don't want to be there. The Congolese are primarily captured and forced into the group. The Ugandans are often tricked into joining. Um, you know, they have family members who call them and say, hey, I've, I have this job for you in Congo. And they have no idea that they're part of the ADF or they're told that they're going to get a, a, an Islamic education or something like that. So there's a lot of people who would surrender if they could. But the consequence of getting caught is that you're going to be beheaded. And the problem is, is that if you surrender and you aren't, you you don't know how to do it. You don't know that you're going to be able to surrender to the right people, that you're going to be able to survive surrendering even because, you know, there have unfortunately been times when ADF members who have been trying to surrender have been caught by the local population and killed. And that those videos are shared on social media. They get back into the group. The leadership uses that to convince members that they shouldn't try to surrender because they're only going to be killed if they do. And so, you know, working with local communities, helping them to recognize why they might want to let some of these people who are part of the ADF, who are part of the Islamic State, who are responsible for these killings, why they might want to let them surrender and then um, working with the people who do come out to make sure that they have a place to land. The ones who, you know, the ones who aren't prosecuted, we leave that to the government to decide who's going to be prosecuted. But um, Uganda has a pretty, a pretty lenient amnesty law, and you know, Congo is is making some its own choices there and everything. But there are people who come out who can go back to their homes, they can go back to their communities, and you can help them with you know, de-radicalization with trauma counseling, with livelihood support, and then feed those stories back into the group to try to help the group understand, help the fighters who want to come out understand that there is another way. And we've seen a lot of success with this. Actually, there's been a spike in defections over the last um, about eight months as we've started to work on some of these things. And this is a a method that we used when we were working on the Lord's Resistance Army in Central Africa many years ago that was very successful. So, you know, the capacity for violence, it absolutely still exists. And there are many people who, unfortunately, their daily reality is this this terror and this fear, but there is there is hope. And I think that's what we need to focus on as well. Ryan, final thoughts? Yeah, I mean... Uh... Yeah, definitely want to echo what Tara said. And I, I think, I guess my kind of perspective looking at this group is they've, they've been there so long, they really understand the terrain, the leadership is very experienced. I mean, most of the leaders went there in the 90s and have been operating in the same areas ever since. So as horrendous as they are, I you do have to admit that they are competent guerrilla fighters and operating in that terrain. And the harsh reality of that is that, you know, military operation after military operation that's been launched against them has weakened them, has inflicted a lot of casualties on them, but they've always been able to kind of bounce back and regenerate. Um, you know, if that leadership is there and if these financial resources are there, 
their ability to go out and kidnap people and forcibly recruit them and their ability to bring in new recruits from around the region. Um, so where, I guess where the, the danger there is, is that, you know, after, after a while of military operations, people, you know, the pressure kind of gets lessened, people move to other priorities and then that cycle starts again. And so I think, you know, where my, my big takeaway on this paper is that, you know, really need to crack down on, on the finances and um, there needs to be really good regional coordination considering how regionally based these, these, the fundraising and laundering is and making sure that these networks and sources of money um, and all these different nodes are, you know, cracked down on in a, in a pretty aggressive and timely way um, because it's only through doing that that you can make the what military successes are achievable stick um that cracking down on those support networks and that is what will impede the adf's ability to regenerate itself after military pressure kind of backs off um which inevitably it will i mean these can't last forever um so yeah i think that's um you know between undercutting their ability to inflict violence and reducing some of the available manpower through things like defections, um, making sure that they don't have the capacity to bounce back afterwards, I think are, are the, the two biggest, um, you know, main takeaways for me from a policy perspective. Okay. Well, I'm realizing now I should have had you go first so that we could end on a message of hope, but oh. uh, <laughs> it's still good. You know, we like to end on these depressing notes anyway. So well, probably on, a little bit more of a reflection of reality. I'm, I know that I'm the bleeding heart of the group. <laughs> you know, but it, it, it I, it's always wonderful to hear that, Tara. Like, you know, we, a lot of times we get accused of focusing on the kinetic aspect. It's important, just as Ryan outlined, but there's other aspects to this, the de-radicalization. Um, and, you know, again, giving avenues for defection, what you point out there, it's extremely important. And it's just not one solution. It's all of these solutions that need to be put together to have a yeah. whole of effort against these terror groups. And I think that's something we've really, uh, the U.S. in Afghanistan and Iraq and Somalia and other places really always stayed away from some of these areas because, you know, sometimes you got to deal with religion and religion can be very icky to us Americans. So, but it's, it, it is good to hear that, that aspect of it. And it's something that doesn't get enough attention here on Generation Jihad. So thank you for bringing that perspective. Ryan, Tara, thank you very much for joining us today on Generation Jihad. Very um, interesting and enlightening conversation. We hope to get you back on here as guests soon. Um, again, thanks for joining us. Thanks, everyone, for joining us for today's episode of Generation Jihad. Just a reminder, you could find us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review, uh, preferably a positive one, only if we earned it. Thanks again. We'll see you all again soon.